0: Pray with me. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all your people's hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. It's good to see all of you. I'm glad that you got to hear my namesake yesterday, St. Francis of Assisi. I'm St. Francis of Geneva, otherwise known as St. Francis de Sales, I was born in the 16th century. I became the Bishop of Geneva, just so you're clear about this, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Geneva. That's what this is all about, in 1602. If you know your church history, you know that means I uh, went to Geneva during the heyday, the heady days of the Protestant Reformation. Though I was made the Bishop of Geneva, I never actually Ministered within the city walls of Geneva. We were in exile, we were Roman Catholics, so I took up the city of Annecy, France, as my Episcopal cathedral. Several times during those years, I would secret myself into the city of Geneva to meet the pastor of Geneva, Theodore Beza. Under pains of death, I would go by nightfall, and there was a banner over the walls of Geneva that said, kill a Catholic for Christ. That was a joke. Okay, it wasn't quite that bad. And don't worry, we gave as good as we got. I would secret myself into the city, and Theodore Beza would receive me, and we would talk at night by his fire. On one particular occasion, I asked him a question that had been burning inside of me. I said, Theodore, do you believe Roman Catholics can be saved? He wasn't expecting that. He kind of was a little bit startled. He got up. I heard him in his library for the next 15 minutes, pacing back and forth. He finally came back, sat down, looked at me, and said, yes, I do. Why did I ask that question? I asked that question because if we were dealing with errant brothers, it would affect everything that we were doing to one another. Yesterday, St. Francis of Sisi highlighted these two major storylines in the Bible. The storyline of rivalry between brothers, you know, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, provides the template for the later conflict between the northern and southern kingdoms. And that is the backstory to this story we heard from John 4 of Jesus with the woman at the well of Samaria. As we know, most Jews went around Samaria. Certainly Jewish rabbis, but Jesus went through it. This storyline of sibling rivalry is the backdrop to understanding this story. The other storyline he mentioned was the storyline of nuptiality. that the Bible begins with a wedding in a garden. It ends with a wedding in a garden. In the middle of the Bible is a nuptial song, the Song of Songs. I call it the soundtrack of the Bible. This is the other storyline, that as the sibling rivalry is going on and all of the destruction that that creates in the people of God, there's this other story of God wooing his people through his servants into nuptial union with Jesus and with one another. And it was this story that captured my imagination when Theodore Beza agreed that we were brothers, estranged brothers, but brothers. So when I was consecrated as the bishop of Geneva, my first sermon as the bishop became my vision statement. And I said to our people, we will reconquer the city of Geneva. We will attack the walls of Geneva. But we will do it with charity. Our only weapons are love. We will reconquer, we will redeem, we will reconcile the city of Geneva through love. See, our job was to basically woo Protestants, not to shame them, not to condemn them, certainly not to kill them. And we had done that on both sides for many years. And it was this story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman that became a touchstone for how I learned to do this with my estranged brothers, the Protestants. I want you to notice how Jesus approaches the woman. He first approaches her, not according to her felt need, but according to his. I'm thirsty. Will you give me something to drink? I love the humility of Jesus. It reminds me when the time when he commandeered Peter's boat set out from the shore so he could preach to the multitudes. And this is before Peter is even a disciple. It's as if Jesus is saying, Peter, I need your gifts. I need your abilities to help me do my ministry. And he comes to the woman of Samaria with the same kind of humility and said, would you give me something to drink? Now, what is the maker of water asking for a drink? That's what Augustine asked, and I love his answer. He said this, The one who asks to drink is indeed the giver of water. So why did then he ask for a drink? That is because he said, I thirst, give me to drink, namely to work faith in her and to drink of her faith and transplant her into his body. For his body is the church. Jesus was thirsty for her. And so Jesus, like his ancestors who wooed women at the well, Jacob and Rachel, Isaac and Rebekah, Moses and Sapphora, he woos this woman. And Would you notice the, the exchange, the dialogue that goes on here? First, she responds to this request for water. Why is it that you a Jew, should ask me, a woman of Samaria, for something to drink. In case you didn't know, the hostilities between Samaritans and Jews was at least as bad as it was between Protestants and Catholics in the 16th century. This was a rhetorical stiff arm. But at least she acknowledges Jesus' need. And that seems to be enough. So Jesus continues. He, he Remember I said they altered all three pillars of Judaism The Torah, the temple, the territory. There's a very good case for calling these people heretics. But Jesus enters into all three of these with the woman, not as if they're complete zones of darkness, but as if it's an opportunity to engage and call her up. So first, she calls him a Jew, and then Sir, a little bit better... And then, after Jesus comes out with this wonderful observation, go tell your husband. She says, sir, I don't have a husband. She says, I know you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is none of the above. And the understatement of the millennium, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. (laughs) I would suggest so. Jew, sir, prophet. And finally, When the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things, and Jesus comes out with this I-me statement, I am he. I'm the personal presence of God. I'm the one you're looking for. You've been looking for love in all the wrong places. You've had five men, another man. I'm the seventh man. I'm the perfect man. I'm the one you are thirsty for, as I am thirsty for you. Jesus is wooing her. And this became my strategy with the Protestants. We will woo them. We will take Geneva by love. How will we do that? I came up with two strategies inspired by this conversation with Jesus and the woman at the well. The first was I decided I would only ordain priests who I was convinced loved God and therefore, get this, loved God and therefore loved protestants. I could no longer separate those two things. If I did not perceive they loved protestants, I doubted that they actually loved God, and so I would not ordain them. Let some other bishop ordain them. I don't need this. I don't need people coming into my diocese and exacerbating the wounds of the church. I need priests coming into my diocese and healing the wounds of the church. The second was this, I would only, first of all, I said, the best polemic is to preach from love. Even if you do not raise an objection to any one of their doctrines, if you preach from love, you are preaching persuasively. But if you must polemicize, only use the authorities that they themselves agree to. In other words, no more quoting St. Thomas Aquinas. Because the Protestants didn't listen to him. So we would only argue from the scriptures and the church fathers, especially Augustine. Because they recognized them as authorities. You can read through all of my writings, you'll find very little quotation from St. Thomas Aquinas. And the church began to think that maybe I was a heretic. Such are the ironies of life. This word that I gave to my diocese, that we will take Geneva by love, it was a prophetic word, but it took 400 years to fulfill. When the the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church met together at the Vatican in the 60s, in what was called Vatican II, some of the leaders observed that basically what they were coming up with was something I had already been doing 400 years earlier. That the work in Geneva in the 1600s by my diocese predated Vatican II. And what did Vatican II say? For the first time, they said, We're no longer going to call Protestant heretics, we're going to call them departed brethren. I don't know about you, what would you prefer to be called? (laughs) And they also went back to the sources, they went back to the scriptures, the church fathers. So we, we built a bridge of peace that could bear the weight of truth. This is the nature of peacemaking. As St. As Francis Assisi said yesterday, peacemaking is not making nice. You don't do peacemaking because you agree, you, may, you do peacemaking because you don't agree and that the stakes are high. It's not making nice, it's not even cohabiting with difference. Pagans do that all the time. Peacemaking is giving life to your adversary, just as Jesus gave life to this woman at the well, while she was an adversary. And it's in giving life to your adversary that there's this wonderful metamorphosis that happens. And over time, the the adversary, the enemy, as you begin to understand them, become a friend and maybe even a brother or a sister. St. Francis mentioned yesterday about this Anglican priest in D.C. that we're trying to rehabilitate. He has so much to to understand about peacemaking, but he has been trying to learn. And he's been learning from his wife who went on a Salation retreat. That is, she went on a retreat in one of my orders while she lived here in Kentucky. And since she's been in D.C., this this, uh, beautiful Anglican pastor's wife has has immersed herself in in my life and in my writings, and she's had a spiritual director who's the retired secretary general for the whole international order. So she's constantly getting these insights and then giving them to her husband. And he is smart enough to actually read them. And incorporate them into his life. This is just a hint for some of you. So, in 2011, this church had been in a multi-million-dollar lawsuit for five years. It was on. It was recorded in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and. Finally, the rector made his way down to Richmond, Virginia to meet the Episcopal bishop with whom he had been in litigation. Even though the litigation started before either one of them arrived, they inherited this litigation, they inherited the bad blood. And this rector went to Richmond with a copy of his favorite book of poetry. For some reason, he just had it in his heart that this is a a gift, a peace offering, something from his heart to the bishop that he wanted to give. Only later did he realize the bishop's father had been a poetry professor, and he said, I, I trust poetry more than I do prose. For something to be true, it has to be true not only in the head, it has to be true in the heart. It was the perfect gift. It was water. It was living water to this bishop. At the end of the meeting that started off very tentative, I can, you know, when you're spending millions of dollars in a lawsuit, I promise you the conflict is intense, It was very tentative, but at the end of the meeting, he said, you know, I think we should meet together every month just to pray and not tell anybody what we're doing. And so they did. They met for a year and they prayed. And as they met and as they prayed, they became friends. A year later, the congregation lost their lawsuit. You heard that St. Francis mentioned the first phone call they got was from the local imam offering the mosque for them to worship in, which, thank God, they did not have to take. The second phone call was from the Episcopal bishop offering a rent-free lease to give the congregation time to find their way into a new home. That lease has now been extended three times now to the year 2021. Nine months before the lawsuit was concluded, and there was no way this rector could know the lawsuit was going to conclude on the particular week that he had invited Canon Andrew White, the vicar of Baghdad, somebody who knows something about conflict and something about peacemaking. The night before, again, no way he could have known this, the night before, he was receiving the first Freedom Award in Richmond, Virginia, and the Episcopal bishop was giving the invocation, and they sat next to each other during the ceremony. The next morning, Andrew came to Truro Church. Everyone was advising the rector do not trust that man, do not trust the Episcopalians, do not trust the Episcopal bishop. Everyone. And he asked Andrew why, Andrew, can I trust him? Andrew looked into his eyes and said, Yes, Tori, you can trust him. And he did. Peacemaking is not reconciliation. There are three moments in peacemaking. We find it in this story. We find it in the lives of peacemakers throughout the history of the church. The third moment of peacemaking is fruitfulness. That church has not entered that moment of peace yet. I, in my ministry, did not enter that moment of peace. We are only now in the wonderful movement of the spirit between Catholics and Protestants entering into that third moment of peace. That third moment is fruitfulness. And tomorrow, St. Francis of Epworth, whom you know as John Wesley, will describe that third moment. God bless.